This is the Best Song Podcast, an oral history of the first 90 years of the Academy Award for Best Original Song. The Best Song Podcast was made possible by the generous support of the following. Paulus Edukas, Terry Freerks, Tina Fry, Jeff Glazer, Mark Hollingsworth, Douglas Meacham, Mark Smith, The Sokolov Family, Colin Stokes, Adrian Quinn Washington, and Ben Watson. Let's settle in now for another year in movie music with host Jeff Cummings. We've just come off learning about one of the biggest years for movie songs in 1977. That featured two songs from the movies that held the number one spot on the Billboard Hot 100 chart from October 1977 to January 1978. One of those songs, You Light Up My Life, won the Academy Award. The other, Staying Alive, was very popular with the public, but not with the Academy, since it did not receive a nomination. That gave us two years of movie songs dominating the music charts, starting with Evergreen in late 1976. The songwriters creating songs for 1978 films had a lot of pressure on them to keep this momentum going, and I think some wrote songs with ticket buyers in mind. Others had an Academy Award nomination on their minds and wrote songs to fit their films but also appealed to the older generation of voters in the Academy's music branch. The five songs nominated for the Academy Award in 1978 are all love songs, with a couple of them bucking traditional melodies to fit in with the popular taste of the time. As we listen to all five of them, remember that there will be crucial plot details revealed throughout the episode. Remember that in 1977, the Academy started a new system of giving a numerical rating to each eligible song as a way of whittling down the ones that did not fit the criteria or being relevant to the movie and also be a good song. In 1978, the procedure was revised slightly. Instead of only allowing songs that got an average score of 7.0 or higher to survive the preliminary voting, the 10 songs that earned the highest scores were put on the preliminary ballot. We don't know what scores they received, but it's likely that some of the 10 songs on the shortlist didn't score very high. I'll leave it up to you to decide if the five nominees, and those which were left out of voting, earned a high score or not. Though he didn't sing in 1977, John Travolta helped movie songs become very popular that year. As the star of Saturday Night Fever, the songs that were featured in the movie became big hits and helped that movie's album sell millions upon millions of copies. Robert Stigwood, the producer of Saturday Night Fever, already had Travolta in mind for his next project, a film adaptation of the 1971 Broadway musical Grease. The plan for the film version was to scrap many of the songs and write four new ones to fit the revised plot, though the film would still be set at the fictional Rydell High School. Writing the title track for the film version of Grease was Barry Gibb, one-third of the Australian group The Bee Gees that wrote all the original songs for Saturday Night Fever. A song called Grease was written for the stage show, but it was dropped before it went to Broadway. And we know how much Hollywood loves a title song, and Gibb responded with a disco-flavored tune that still had its toes in the 1960s when the film is set. Frankie Valli, who was the lead singer of the 1960s group The Four Seasons, got a brief career resurgence with the recording of this song, which gave him his first number one song as a solo artist in August 1978. 
Even though Hollywood loves a title song, it wasn't Grease that got the Oscar nomination. It was one of the songs that Australian songwriter and producer John Farrar wrote called Hopelessly Devoted to You. Before Grease, Farrar had been working with fellow Aussie Olivia Newton-John, who was not known as an actress but passed her screen test with flying colors. Plus, she could sing better than any of the other women being considered for the lead role of Sandy. In her contract, Newton-John stipulated that she had to have a solo song, which Sandy never got in the original stage version. Hopelessly Devoted to You is that song. Like the title song Grease, it doesn't feel like it would have been written in the 1960s. From the first second, the song takes on a country-western feel with its guitar twangs, adding in a pop beat that sets it firmly in the 1970s. The rhymes and the lyrics here are the real showcase. I enjoy hearing the way rhymes and lyrics don't always fit the beat of the music. For example, Farrar rhymes the word no with the first syllable of over, and instead of letting the rhyme for head in the sentence, it continues for two more words, devoted to you. Sandy sings the song after spending a night with the Pink Ladies, who are the popular girls at the school. Danny, the boy she spent a fun summer romance with and still carries a torch for, had made fun of her in their summer romance earlier in the night in front of their friends. Even though she could have her pick up any number of boys at the school, Sandy can't forget about Danny. She goes outside to sing about her feelings.
Farrar was under immense pressure to write Hopelessly Devoted to You. The movie was nearing the end of filming, and Sandy's solo song still hadn't been written. In a 2004 interview with author Debbie Kruger, John Farrar talked about the agony of writing Hopelessly Devoted to You, saying, quote, I spent the longest period writing the lyrics. I used every thesaurus and every rhyming dictionary I had, just trying to really make it work properly, end quote. The song worked, and it was a big hit for Olivia Newton-John, reaffirming her status as a worldwide pop star when the song was released as a single in August 1978. It sold more than a million copies and peaked at number three on the Billboard Hot 100 in the end of September 1978. On the Way Up was a song that was featured in the stage version and made popular by Travolta and Newton-John called Summer Nights. On the opposite end of taking a long time to write Hopelessly Devoted to You, Farrar said he wrote the film's finale song, You're the One That I Want, in about a day. This song might have been a strong contender for an Academy Award nomination as well, but it didn't get a high enough score to get past the preliminary voting. was a phenomenal success, making $132 million in the second half of 1978. It was the highest grossing movie from 1978, making more money than Superman. The soundtrack overtook Saturday Night Fever as the best-selling movie album, a record it would hold for 14 years. And as of 2023, it remains the highest grossing live-action movie musical. While Hopelessly Devoted to You was working its way up the charts, it was jockeying for position with a big disco song that was written for the very forgettable movie, Thank God It's Friday. The entire movie feels very much like Saturday Night Fever, if that movie spent 95% of its runtime in the dance hall. The movie these days is only notable for the appearances of Jeff Goldblum as the club's owner, Deborah Winger as a jaded patron in her major film debut, a cameo appearance by the singing group The Commodores, and the Oscar-nominated song that was one of 30 that appeared in the film. Donna Summer, known then and now as the Queen of Disco, made her only film appearance as a singer named Nicole looking to make her big break. She comes to the disco hall trying to convince the DJ to play her record. After a couple of unsuccessful attempts, and during a somewhat connected plotline involving the DJ's inability to get the Commodores to perform at the club, Nicole grabs the microphone and just starts singing, 
as the DJ connects the dance club's live feed to the radio. Once the music plays a more upbeat rhythm, everyone at the club starts dancing to Nicole's song called Last Dance. Who you calling, sweetheart, turkey? We're going on live now, you understand? Live. I what told are you, you doing? I need Last live, dance though, man. You got to get it, though. Hey, will you please get off the stage? Yes, Listen, man, you're killing me. You mad, honey? Put the microphone well, down, all right? Just you put it down and get off the stage. talking about you could deliver the Commodore. Hey, sweetheart, get off the stage. Because you ain't gave me nothing. Wait a minute, Sam. Sam, I can't do anything with Just give me a few minutes, huh? Otherwise, I'm going to break every bone in your goddamn ass. Microphone, let me get off the stage. We don't know for sure if Nicole is going to be a superstar singer, since that plotline doesn't get its resolution. All we know is that she begins a romance with the DJ, and he plays her song at the end of the movie while they kiss in the booth. 
It's the only song in the movie that's played more than once, and it was, to my knowledge, the only original song written for the movie. All the other songs were previously recorded by many artists signed with Motown Records or Casablanca Records, the two labels that put a lot of money into getting the film made. Last Dance was written by Paul Jabara, who appears in the movie as the nerdy Carl. Jabara had been acting in Broadway musicals, including the very 70s shows Hair and Jesus Christ Superstar. In 1977, Jabara released his debut album on the Casablanca label called Shut Out. It didn't sell very well, but it featured the title song as a duet with Donna Summer, and that started a partnership that lasted a few years. When Casablanca agreed to partially finance Thank God It's Friday as an album-selling venture, the label looked to Jabara to write a song for Summer that she hadn't already recorded. Obviously, this decision was made to have a song eligible for award consideration, but it also helped continue Summer's status as the disco queen and make Jabara notable as a songwriter. Donna Summer recorded a fuller, cleaner version of Last Dance for commercial release, and it fought with Hopelessly Devoted to You for the number one spot on the Billboard chart. Summer could only get the song as high as number three, and it helped Thank God It's Friday make more than $6 million at the box office. It was a pittance compared to Greece, but Columbia Studios made a small profit from what was seemingly a rush job to capitalize on disco music while it was still in fashion. Olivia Newton-John was the big female singing star of the second half of 1978, taking the throne away from Debbie Boone, who was still riding high after winning a Grammy for You Light Up My Life in February, in addition to being named Best New Artist. In an effort to capitalize on her fame, Boone signed on to sing another Oscar-nominated song. This time, it was for the only musical to feature the dog Lassie, called The Magic of Lassie. The movie, which was the ninth film to feature Lassie and the first in 15 years, is a dud from the beginning. Apparently, someone forgot that Jimmy Stewart proved he wasn't a singer in 1936's Born to Dance. The star of It's a Wonderful Life and Mr. Smith Goes to Washington sings the first song in the movie, That Hometown Feeling, and things can only go downhill from there musically. Mickey Rooney helps balance things by singing a song during his cameo appearance. Debbie Boone sings three songs in voiceover, and her father Pat sings one as well. The magic of Lassie pulls on the heartstrings with a few scary moments for the collie, and I got emotional watching a couple of scenes. But it was a movie for a different time, and it only made about $6 million. The story for The Magic of Lassie was created by Richard and Robert Sherman, the songwriting brothers who had been dabbling more into screenplay writing to keep themselves in the business. By creating stories, they were able to convince the filmmakers that songs were needed, even though only two of them were performed on screen. The one that got the Oscar nomination is called When You're Loved, and the first time we hear it comes fairly late in the movie when Lassie is on her journey back to the winery in California where she spent most of her life. She had been taken to Colorado to live with the man who is believed to be her original owner, and after running away, she finds herself hitching a ride on a train. Debbie Boone sings When You're Loved here for only 90 seconds, saving the full version for the big reunion at the end when we see Lassie come over the hill 
tired and dirty, running in slow motion toward the family she had risked her life to see again. Darcy! When you're out there on your own, trying to make it all alone, cause you seek the missing pieces of your life. It's a rough and tumble journey on a road that never ends. It's a cold, cold world you're walking through, my friend. But when you're loved, when you're loved, you always walk in love's reflection. And when you're loved, when you're loved, somehow you find This crazy jigsaw puzzle life With all its pain and all its strife Becomes a beautiful scene But I mean only when you're loved There's a time you start to doubt you say what's it all about and you'd like to throw those fading dreams away cause the road keeps leading nowhere empty days and endless nights with that happy journey's end so far from sight but when you're loved when you're loved, there's not a storm you cannot weather. And when you're loved, when you're loved, the missing parts all fit together. This crazy jigsaw.
When You're Loved was released as a commercial record, but it got nowhere near the sales numbers that You Light Up My Life got for Debbie Boone. It never made it onto the Billboard Hot 100, and radio airplay was minimal in favor of disco songs from Donna Summer and the Bee Gees, and an anti-love song from Barbara Streisand. When Your Loved did get into the top 50 of Billboard's adult contemporary chart, which is much better than the next two song nominees got. The first of these songs comes from the comedy-drama movie Same Time Next Year, a film adaptation of a Broadway play that stars Ellen Burstyn and Alan Alda as two people who have an affair at the same motel on the same day, every year, for 26 years. It's a tricky thing to make audiences root for two people cheating on their spouses, but I've always enjoyed Alan Alda's performance here at the height of his success on the TV show M.A.S.H. And Ellen Burstyn deserved her Oscar nomination, playing different moods and personalities in one person over the course of 20 years. You can feel her character developing through the years, and she doesn't need makeup to show that she's maturing. Following these two characters through the film is the love song, The Last Time I Felt Like This, performed as a duet by Johnny Mathis and Jane Oliver. Both singers had been touring together in 1978 when they were hired to sing the song. We're introduced to Marvin Hamlish's touching and memorable melody for the song first, played only on the piano during the opening credits as George and Doris arrive at the Oceanside Inn in 1951. Once the credits are over, the lyrics from Alan and Marilyn Bergman come in as George and Doris bond across the room at the Inn's restaurant, then later that night as they grow closer. We see Doris and George speaking on screen, but the song is the only thing we hear. Mathis and Oliver are singing these characters' inner thoughts, which they probably aren't saying to each other that night.
Hello, I don't even know your name, but I'm hoping all the same. This is more than just a simple hello. Hello, do I smile and look away? No, I think I smile and stay to see where this might go. first of four reprises of the song comes at the end of the scene in 1951, when a photo montage shows us memorable moments in history in the five years leading up to the next scene. We get some new lyrics commenting on the passage of time to go over the same melody. Note that they are singing the chorus in a counter melody, which is one of the new trends for duets in the 1970s. Seasons have come and gone And the world goes tumbling on Look what's happened since I last saw your smile Hello, love's invited us back here The same as she did last year To come and spend Feeling 
The second reprise of the song is very quick. It's just Mathis singing the chorus as we move from 1956 to 1961. vocal reprise of the song is very somber, coming at the end of a very emotional scene in which George has revealed that his son had died in the Vietnam War. After months of not being able to cry, he collapses in Doris's arms, followed by images of Vietnam protests and people smoking marijuana, and Mathis sings about crushed dreams. Dreams make promises they can't keep They can swindle you while you sleep And the morning finds you wondering why It seems when we're young in dreams we trust maybe growing up is just kissing certain dreams goodbye after 26 years doris and george pledge to keep seeing each other until our bones are too brittle to make contact and that brings up a swell in the music as they kiss and we close out the film with the final version of The Last Time I Felt Like This. New lyrics reflect on the past 26 years with love, and the counter-melody performance in the chorus returns. Hello, it all started with hello On an evening long ago when an unexpected smile caught my eye Hello, if I'd smiled and looked away We would not be here today To never say goodbye
This marked the first Oscar nominations for the Bergmans since they won the award for The Way We Were five years earlier with Hamlish. They had been working steadily since then, writing the lyrics for the smash duet You Don't Bring Me Flowers, which Neil Diamond and Barbara Streisand recorded separately, then re-recorded as a duet and won Grammys for it. The Bergmans took a swing at a Broadway musical in 1978 called Ballroom about a widow who finds a new life with a married man she meets at a disco. Clearly, the show was meant to capitalize on the disco craze of the time, and it lasted for 118 performances. The show was nominated for eight Tonys in 1979, but ironically not for the score. Hamlish's stage musical, They're Playing Our Song, was nominated as well, but also missed out on the original score nomination. Perhaps getting the Oscar nomination for The Last Time I Felt Like This was a small consolation for all three of them. Since there was not a lot of music in the same time next year, there was no official soundtrack release. And The Last Time I Felt Like This only got released to the public as part of Johnny Mathis's album The Best Days of My Life in January 1979. The song reached number 15 on the Billboard Easy Listening Charts, but couldn't get onto the overall Hot 100 list. What must have attracted the music branch members was the song's strong role in Same Time Next Year. Johnny Mathis and Jane Oliver were properly mentioned early in the movie credits, as they serve as the third and fourth performers in the movie. Charles Fox and Norman Gimbel returned to the Oscars in 1978 with their song, Ready to Take a Chance Again, from the movie Foul Play. It was Chevy Chase's film debut, two years after he left Saturday Night Live, and the public and critical reception helped jumpstart his career. Goldie Hawn is the main star of the movie as a librarian who gets involved in an assassination plot, and what makes the movie interesting is the lack of extreme physical comedy, save for one scene involving a little person rolling down the stairs in a barrel. It also has a lot of references to Alfred Hitchcock movies, including Dial M for Murder and The Man Who Knew Too Much. And like The Man Who Knew Too Much, Foul Play has an Oscar-nominated song in it called Ready to Take a Chance Again. It plays over the opening credits as Goldie Hawn's character Gloria drives down the California coastline towards San Francisco. Gloria is a divorcee who mentions in the opening scene at a party that she's not really interested in finding love after her divorce. And Barry Manilow sings the exact opposite feeling. The song starts off as a typical ballad, but rises to an inspiring end. You remind me I live in Safe from the past and doing okay, but not very well. No jolts, no surprise. 
Barry Manilow had his first hit with Mandy in 1974 and performed his first movie song with Ready to Take a Chance Again. Having Manilow sing this song, or any male singer for that matter, doesn't make sense. If it's being sung from the perspective of Chevy Chase's police lieutenant, there's no indication that he's soured on finding love. But that was part of Gloria's backstory, so having a female singer perform the song would have been a better decision. Lyricist Norman Gimbel and composer Charles Fox could have retired after writing the popular theme song to the popular TV shows Wonder Woman and Happy Days in the early 1970s, but their output just increased as the decade continued. Ready to Take a Chance Again was a surprise success, getting as high as number 11 on the Billboard Hot 100 and being listed as one of the top 100 songs of 1978. So, those are the five nominated songs from 1978. Another song that could have been an Oscar contender in 1978 was changed severely in the movie's final version. In Superman, the Man of Steel takes Lois Lane on a flying trip around Metropolis with the love theme composed by John Williams along for the journey. After Lois accidentally falls through the sky and later caught by Superman, a song was supposed to be performed that would allow us to hear Lois's internal romantic thoughts about Superman. It was called Can You Read My Mind, 
and was to be performed by Tony Tennille of the famous duo The Captain and Tennille. Leslie Brickus was hired to write the lyrics, and he was pleased with Tennille's performance when it was recorded in summer 1978. But director Richard Donner had another plan. Donner thought it would be best for the woman playing Lois Lane, Margot Kidder, to sing Can You Read My Mind. A good idea at first, but it turned out to be a bust when Kidder sang the first note. Realizing that Kidder couldn't sing, Donner didn't decide to use Tony Tennille's performance, but rather have Kidder speak Leslie Brickus's lyrics. Leslie Briggs had not been told about this retooling of his lyrics, so imagine his shock when the scene played in front of him at the world premiere of the movie. According to Briggs in his memoir, the resulting change of the song meant Richard Donner and John Williams, quote, came perilously close to losing a significant percentage of my high regard, end quote. Briggs had only agreed to do the job because he felt an Oscar nomination was in the cards, and he needed it to revive his movie songwriting career. Because the lyrics were spoken and not sung, Can You Read My Mind should not have been eligible for the Academy Award. But the music branch felt otherwise and put it on the list of eligible songs for voters to nominate. And they did nominate it, at least past the first round of votes, to make it one of the ten songs vying for the final five nomination spots. But it went no further than that. How the song managed to skirt eligibility rules is unclear, but I tend to believe that if the unreleased Tony Tennille version had been played, Can You Read My Mind would have been a surefire Oscar nominee. Maureen McGovern, who had originated the Oscar-winning song We May Never Love Like This Again, recorded a version that was released in February 1979, just as Oscar nominations were being announced, hence too late to sway anyone, who preferred a traditional sung version.
talked about all the five nominees for the original song Golden Globe Award for 1978. Three of them will become Oscar nominees, Last Dance, Ready to Take a Chance Again, and The Last Time I Felt Like This. The title song from Grease and You're the One That I Want gave the musical two chances to win the award. But it was Last Dance that took the first song award of the season and giving Paul Jabara a win over legendary songwriters such as the Bergmans, the Bee Gees, and Marvin Hamlish. None of the Oscar nominees were deemed worthy enough to be nominated for the top two Grammy Awards, Song of the Year and Record of the Year. So that left the Golden Globes as the only barometer of which song was the frontrunner going into the April 9, 1979 telecast of the 51st Academy Awards. Even if the songs from 1978 weren't of the same quality or popularity as those from the preceding two years, the producers of the Oscar telecast made the historic decision to finally get all the original performers to sing on the show. Credit goes to Jack Haley Jr., who had been a producer of the Oscar show before, but had never had the foresight to give the audiences the chance to hear all the nominated songs performed by the people who had originated them. All the songs were performed in random order, and Olivia Newton-John started things off with Hopelessly Devoted to You. Debbie Boone returned to the Oscar stage to sing When You're Loved, one year after the controversial performance of You Light Up My Life. She wasn't accompanied by anyone on stage at this year's performance except the orchestra, all of whom were really playing their instruments. After Barry Manilow sang Ready to Take a Chance Again, Chris Christopherson came out to present the original song Oscar. Before he read the nominations, he introduced his co-presenter, Ruby Keeler, who was part of the birth of Talking Pictures and was the performer of the title song to the musical 42nd Street in 1933. She earned a very lengthy ovation from the audience before she was given the task of reading the names of the nominees. Though she took some time to do it, Keeler finally was ready to open the envelope and declare Paul Jabara's last dance as the winner. Even though the song had won the Golden Globe, the win was surprising given the extreme middle finger the Academy gave to the disco music from Saturday Night Fever the year before. But I guess we should put the blame on the music branch for not nominating anything from that movie. 
It's likely the Academy as a whole might have voted to give the BG something for Saturday Night Fever, and this was their way of indirectly apologizing for that. Columbia Pictures won their second original song Oscar in two years, also claiming the 1977 winner, You Light Up My Life. It was the studio's third overall best song win, the first being the massively popular The Way We Were in 1973. So at least Columbia Pictures has a great track record with original songs. At 31 years old, Paul Jabara wasn't the youngest Oscar-winning songwriter, but he did join an exclusive club as only one of three professional actors to win the Oscar for songwriting. Keith Carradine and Barbara Streisand were the others. Come to think of it, should we count Paul Williams on that list, since he did have a few acting credits on his resume? Okay, he's on the list too. Having four actors in four years write songs and win Oscars for them signaled a major shift in who was writing popular movie songs now. No longer were professional songwriters the only ones to write the hits, with the singers only involved in the process with the time came to record the songs. Donna Summer couldn't be nominated for an Oscar for singing Last Dance, but she did get an award for her performance. The Grammy for Best R&B Female Vocal Performance went to Summer in February 1979, her first of five eventual Grammy wins. There was no disco category in 1979, but that changed the following year. As we move forward in this podcast, you'll notice that the nominated songs will almost always feature songwriters who come in from the pop music world to write music and or lyrics. We could thank Isaac Hayes for blazing the trail for that, and it only took an entire decade for it to catch on. Paul Jabara continued to write songs, including one for Barbara Streisand's 1979 movie, The Main Event. We'll talk about that song on the next episode, but it was another song in 1979 that he wrote for Donna Summer and Barbara Streisand called Enough is Enough, that went all the way to number one in the Billboard Hot 100 in December 1979. Probably Jabara's most lasting contribution to songwriting, outside of Last Dance, is the song It's Raining Men from 1982. It's become an anthem of sorts for the gay community around the world. Probably not what Jabara expected from it. Charles Fox, John Farrar, and the Sherman Brothers all received their final Oscar nominations this year. As I mentioned earlier, the era of movie songwriters was ending, and the Sherman Brothers were no longer in high demand, even though they were coming up with the ideas themselves for their movie projects. The box office failure of The Magic of Lassie was a strong indication that the brothers, now just 57 and 54 years old, were no longer relevant. Gone were the days of the big Disney musicals, at least temporarily, But the Sherman Brothers did return to Disney after The Magic of Lassie to write a song here and there in the 1980s, but they essentially were retired from the business. You might not have noticed this, but we've reached the halfway point of this 92-episode podcast, and it's fitting that the songs in the second half of the show will sound very different from many of those that earned Academy Awards in the first 45 years. That's not to say that the songs from the first 45 years of the Academy Awards for Best Song are all better. They're just different. So I learned a lot on this episode, and I really hope you did as well. 
We're going to 1979 for the next episode, and we're going to have the motion picture debut of one of the world's best entertainers. Who do you think it is? Join me for the next episode to find out. Thanks as always for singing along with me. Let's do it again next time. The Best Song Podcast is not authorized or endorsed by the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. The show's creator, writer, producer, and editor is Jeff Cummings. All music clips are permitted for use under the Education Clause of the Fair Use Doctrine in United States law.